Go ahead and open up to Matthew 25, or excuse me, Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. They were up on the screen a moment ago, and Jason just read that for us. But today is the beginning of Advent season, and the message of the reflection song that Tim and the worship team just played that we sang together, O Come All You Unfaithful, is at the heart of our Advent series. The song was written by a woman named Lisa Clow, who shared this about the motivation and inspiration for writing. She says, I was struggling. It had been a long year and a half. Finances were stressful. I had miscarried twins, and on top of it, I was battling a deep relational bitterness. My church was having their annual service where they kick off the Christmas season with carols and special songs, and I, for once, was not singing. I told them that I wouldn't be able to sing, but... What they didn't know is that I was too overcome with shame to stand on the stage before my church. That Sunday morning, I stood at my seat as they began to sing, O come, all ye faithful. And the first line of the song just clobbered me. It hit me like a giant wave of guilt. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. I remember hearing those words and thinking, I've been so unfaithful. My joy was dwindled and am I triumphant? a triumphant failure. And I didn't sing the rest of the service. I drove home, my mind still churning. Is that really who's invited to come to Jesus? The faithful, the joyful, the triumphant? If so, then I'm hopeless. And she wrote that song, and Lisa is one of the writers for Sovereign Grace Ministries, and She penned it along with another person as she sat down, she got home, and she just began to write, write from her heart, the burdens of her heart. And it really is a joyful song of lament. It's it's the very act of what bridges God's sovereignty with man's suffering, with humanity's suffering. And we see this posture and this tone, right, that We come to Christ not always in moments of joyfulness and not always in moments of cheerfulness, but we come to Christ wherever we're at. That's his call. And that there is a praise that remains that we can sing because God is calling man to himself. And in this season, that's the purpose of the Advent is to be reminded that we need to slow down and reflect on the implications of all of Christ's birth. Faithful and unfaithful, Christ calls us to come to Him. That's His call. And so during Advent, we're going to be looking at four different passages in which Jesus specifically calls us to come. It's actually fewer than you think. When I was putting together this series, there were things that I began looking at in Bible passages that I learned when I was young. And then I went to actually looked them up and realized that actually they had been translated a little bit differently. And there's actually fewer statements in the Bible than you think where Jesus says, come. But when he does, we need to stop and listen. And when he does, he reveals his purpose for us. And when he does, it's an invitation to each of us to come to the Savior who was born, God in flesh, for us. 
And so Matthew eleven twenty five verse 30, which Jason just read, makes it clear that Jesus invites all to come and find true rest in him because Christ is born for our rest. Jesus invites all to come and find true rest in him. Jesus wants all to find rest. Now, Jesus, in this passage, Jesus had been ministering in Capernaum. We've been in the Gospel of Luke, and we've actually just recently, uh, Kelly preached recently talking about uh, just the, the woman who had anointed Jesus' feet. And prior to that, John had preached on John the Baptist, asking the question, are you the Messiah? Well, in this account of Matthew, we're actually quite near that spot. John the Baptist has just questioned if Jesus is genuinely the Messiah, and Jesus points out before them, he says, listen, look at my deeds, look at what I've done, look at my works. And he says, but some of you, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What he was saying in that passage was, hey, you've seen You've seen who I am, and yet you are rejecting me. And after he sends the, the disciples of John away, and he speaks to this crowd and reveals to them their, their blindness, their unwillingness to come to truth, he then goes on to denounce the cities. And he tells Capernaum this. He tells Capernaum that there will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for them. Now think about that for a minute. I mean, even today, right? Even in our culture, 2,000 years later, actually 2,500 years later, or more, close to 3,000 years, we still know Sodom and Gomorrah is not a good thing. Our culture knows Christ in terms of who Christ is as a person, maybe not know them him relationally, but they know his name. But our culture also is quite familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah because it is the first visible act of God's judgment upon a city in Scripture, his judgment upon a people for their direct disobedience to God. And this judgment is severe. And he says, listen, you Capernaum, what happened to Sodom is nothing compared to what's going to happen to you. Because he says here that they have seen my mighty works. Jesus has revealed himself showing the works of the Messiah and they continue to reject out of their own pride and self-sufficiency. Now you can imagine that there were those that were standing by, Jew and Gentile alike, who were hearing this. You can imagine that there were those that were wondering, well, if Capernaum is going to experience God's judgment and they're Jews, how in the world will we avoid it? Well, in verse 28 and 29, Jesus calls all to come to me. I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. You see, God desires that we rest from the terror and the guilt and the power of sin. He wants us to be at peace in Him. He wants us, our consciences, to be at peace. He wants us to walk in a peace, knowing that God is at work and He has a plan for us. 
And the truth is, he does have a plan for our rest, but it's not found in our self-sufficiency. It's not found in a trip to Hawaii or Jamaica or the Bahamas. Those are nice things, and they help with physical rest, but they will never give you salvation. They will never give you life eternal. You see, his plan for rest is found in his sufficiency alone. So let's take a look here at his plan for experiencing the peaceful rest of Jesus. If Jesus is supposed to be our rest, where it says, come to me, I will give you rest, you will find rest for your souls, what is his plan for experiencing peaceful rest in Jesus? Well, verse 25 through 27 says, at that time, Jesus declared. Now note, this is a prayer. Jesus has just gone on. He's just rebuked the nations who are walking in disobedience, that are rejecting him as the Messiah, the cities that are rejecting him as the Messiah. He says in verse 21, that if the works that were done in Capernaum had been done in Bethsaida or in Corazon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He says the same thing about Tyre and Sidon. And he says this about Capernaum. He says, you will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, meaning they would have come to a place of repentance. The work of Jesus is so strong at demonstrating the truth of who God is and that man has no ability to stand in righteousness before him and that Jesus is the only answer. That it would have turned Sodom. That's how strong the tooth of Christ is. It's important to remember this, that there is not a city in our nation or in our world that is too far gone for the gospel of Jesus Christ to impact. You see, the gospel has power, but God has a plan for us to experience the peaceful rest of Jesus. And so Jesus begins here with a prayer. He's softening, he's comforting, he's showing his compassion for the hearts of those that begin to wonder. And he says this, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The first thing, the first part of his plan for experiencing the peaceful rest of Jesus is to know that God is sovereign and he has chosen you. If you have come to saving faith in Jesus, you need to recognize that he is both sovereign and he has chosen you. Now, I want to stop here for just a minute. This is important because this is one of the doctrines that often gets kind of confusing for us. It's a confusing doctrine that often we don't like. 
There's two things that we need to respond to with this. One is that when God chooses, when he he calls us to himself, when it says here that Jesus is the one who's chosen to reveal the Father to some, and that God has the Father has hidden the gospel to others, those who, who are, as he says, wise in understanding of the world, meaning their pride self-sufficient, we all come from a position of pride and self-sufficiency. It is only by the grace of God that he opens our eyes to his truth. Now, it's important to understand that that does not mean that we don't have a responsibility to respond to that gospel. It doesn't mean that we just sit by idly and say, well, I can see Jesus, but we make no confession of him as Lord and Savior. It does not negate our response to him. It only means that in that, that God has exposed his, his, his purpose, his will, his salvation to us. And in so doing, we don't walk away from this passage and say, well, that's good enough, I know. God's call is still one of repentance and belief. Now, Scripture teaches us that that comes as a part of the Spirit of God working in our heart, leading us to confess and repent a whole and complete work of Jesus, not of our own. Sometimes that's hard for us to grasp. But we need to remember that God elected a nation to reveal his glory, the nation of Israel, to a people. And it's easy sometimes to say it's a nation, but remember, that was a unique promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that it would be his descendants that would be abundant. Now, This was not to be something that was to be wielded as a sword. It was not to be something that caused people to say, well, you know what? We're the chosen, therefore we become arrogant. We see that in Scripture, don't we? We see that with Israel, right? In their own belief that they are chosen of God, they what? They actually all of a sudden become blind, and the gospel goes forth to all people, so as to make the Jews jealous that they might turn towards Jesus. More importantly, when we look at election in Scripture, it's almost always tied to affliction. The point of God revealing that he has chosen is to remind us and to give us hope that whatever affliction, whatever circumstance, whatever burden we're experiencing, that he has chosen us for it. He has both called us and equipped us to walk through it. Romans 8, one of the best verses that talks about that, saying that Jesus both foreknew and predestined us for salvation, is right on the heels of him saying that, listen, The suffering that you're going through right now is similar to childbirth. In the face of glory, you won't even remember it. We were visiting Aaron and Elena this week after Mavis was born. Elise asked the question. I wasn't going to ask it. I have no right or grounds to ask. Elise was like, do you remember the pain? 
And I'm thinking to myself, of course you do. But Elena's like, well, I mean, it's kind of relative, right? Like it's, it's, I, I got her, right? You don't even necessarily count it in relationship to the blessing. And so what he's saying about suffering here, what he's bringing us into is this, he's reminding us that it is important that we know that God has chosen for salvation because we can know that Jesus is thankful for us and has called us to it. Whatever burdens that you're facing, whatever things that you're walking through, that doctrine should give you hope And I think sometimes we try to put it into a nice little box and take the mystery out of it. We need to work out our faith with with fear and trembling, but we need to not remove the mystery of it as well. We don't get the freedom to say that we know everything about God and how God works. And we don't get the freedom to remove His divine tensions either. Those divine tensions should cause us to stand in awe of saying, God, you are greater. You understand these things that I don't. But what I know is your word says that my salvation is a part of your gracious will. And while I don't fully understand how you can show mercy to some and not others, what I rejoice in is that you have revealed it to me and I will go forward with that. Jesus thanked the Lord with rejoicing that he had hidden the truth to the prideful and revealed his truth to the children, those that were coming to him in full dependence. It's a wonderful hope to us. You see, Galatians 1.15 says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. We need to know that God is sovereign that all of us are deserving of death apart from Him. And yet, He has chosen to give life with Him eternally to some. I was trying to think of the best example of that. I don't know if you guys watched this game yesterday, the, the, the Big 12, uh, just their title game, and you guys see this, this, this controversy with the Dr. Pepper thing? I don't know if you guys saw this, but at halftime, they did a, 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 basically a game. They brought out two people to go and to, you know, go do chess passes of footballs into an inflatable Dr. Pepper can. And whoever won of the two individuals, they got $100,000 towards their school tuition. And they have done this for several years now, Dr. Pepper has, but... In this particular case, they got one piece of controversy. Now, I was watching it, and I'm going, wow, man, that seems like really crazy, right? Like, and so in it, what they found after it being televised was that they went into two overtimes, meaning these guys went for 30 seconds, and they got, got it all, and then got all the same in there. Then they go a second round, overtime round, they tie again. And then a third round is a one-off. It's sudden death. You either make it, miss it, whatever. First guy goes, he misses. Second guy goes, he wins. But people on TV start playing it backwards, and they start writing in. 
what they start writing in is the guy who won on the previous round, they had blown the whistle for his last throw and the ball was not out of his hands yet. And they said, oh, he should have lost that round. Now, we're thinking to yourself, well, what do you do in that situation, right? What do you do? Is Dr. Pepper obligated to pay both of them? Well, no, because what is it? In their generosity, they're giving one. They have the opportunity to give one. It's still a good thing, is it not? Now, Dr. Pepper did the right thing, I think, in this case. Well, I don't know if there was a right thing. But they have come out and said they are paying for both $100,000 to both of them as a way to do that. That's not a plug for Dr. Pepper, by the way. That's simply saying that as we deal with the goodness of God, we need to be reminded that because he's sovereign and because of who we are, his expression of mercy towards us in drawing us to him for salvation is an act of his mercy and goodness. Because he is sovereign, he gets to make the rules and decide. But what we can see is that his goodness is displayed to all. Now, he goes on in verse 27, and he says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The reality is, is the relationship between the Father and Son is at the heart of our own peace. Zechariah 6.13 says, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal, bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. God has designed it that our peace would be found not in our circumstances, not in the flesh, but in Christ alone. And so then in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who label and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The second part of his plan is that we come to Jesus in the weariness of our strivings and our burdens. We come to Jesus in the weariness of our strivings and our burdens. This idea of laboring deals specifically with inward toil inward burden, inward weariness, specifically the striving towards righteousness. I don't think that the Lord thinks of our relationship with Him as one of work. We're called to do good works in His service. But his righteousness is granted to us through Jesus. We need to be reminded that he is the one who has made us righteous, not our deeds. And he's calling us saying, listen, for all those who are striving in righteousness, striving to come to him in the way of their own self-sufficiency, he's saying, stop, come to me. He's pointing out to those that he's speaking to, that the Pharisees and the rulers and the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people of that time 
were all striving for salvation, believing that if they just could make themselves more righteous, they would then please God. And Jesus' invitation was stop. You ever tried just to stop something? How many times have you taken a behavior in your life that you know is destructive to you and just tried to stop it with one more thing? What Jesus is calling you to do is to come to him. He's saying, listen, it's not about one more program. It's not about one more thing. Come to me first. Stop laboring. Stop laboring for your righteousness. And oh, by the way, those of you who are heavy laden, that's the outward. That's the things coming from the outside that are bringing discouragement and disappointments in our pursuit of the Lord. Ever start walking with the Lord and just feeling like, man, alive, things just got really hard? Ever been angry at God? Because you're like, God, this is enough. I'm trying to follow you, and this is enough. And he's saying, come to me. You see, when we're weary, our tendency is to run from God rather than to run to him. And Jesus is saying, come to me. Let me tell you about a little bit about my week this week. Tuesday, we were in staff meeting, and coffee inadvertently got spilled all over my computer. Had my week planned out. Thought, oh, this is good. I'm going to get a head start on my week. Slowly but surely, as I'm sitting there, I start losing the use of my keyboard on my computer and go to the store find out the keyboard is now completely dead. I understand that much of my life is on this computer, more than I actually realized. And it just starts dying slowly. Get it? They say, go home, you can plug in another keyboard, try to order up another computer. This plan that I had for my week, my own means of relaxation that I wanted, Last night, I just wanted to sit and watch the Iowa football game. You guys know I'm an Iowa Hawkeyes fan. Just wanted to watch them. It was good I missed it because they got beat pretty bad. <laughs> but I just wanted to watch it sit down. And I had other things planned. Slowly but surely, as I would go through these plans this week, Friday came and I had a health issue that was kind of overcame me all day and and uh, I was really battling pretty hard, and I lost that day. And Friday or Saturday morning, I got up, and I came down to my computer to get started to just type out my sermon, and nothing would work at all. Now, some of you guys love working on computers. I hate it, right? Now my computer's dead, and in my genius idea, I decided not to back it up while it was working. So I didn't have anything left of my files more recently. And I'll tell you guys, I sat down, as I sat down to do that, my heart was grumbling, I was angry, I was frustrated, and said, God, 
can you just throw a bone my way? Can you just give me this? It's been a hard year. I didn't really need this. I wanted to do this today for myself, and this has happened. And the Lord immediately drew me back to this word and said, all those who are heavy laden. And it was amazing. When I went to him, things changed. In that moment, stopping and saying, Lord, all right, I'm trying to fix this all in my own strength. All these things that I think are important are not. Psalm 38, 3 through 4 says, There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. You see, we come to Jesus because we have a need. And the only way that we can come to Jesus is to see that we are not sufficient and our way is not sufficient. Jim Baumkamp adds, those who come to Christ come to him because of a need, for until there is a real need in a person's life, he will never turn to God. Romans 8, 2 through 3 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the freedom of the gospel. God desires us to rest, to stop striving for righteousness. And when the attacks come from the outside, when things are burdening us and disappointing and discouragements and despair, we come running to him. Oswald Chambers points out this. He says, at the most unexpected moments in your life, there is this whisper of the Lord. Come to me. And you are immediately drawn to him. Personal contact with Jesus changes everything. Be foolish enough to come and commit yourself to what he says. The attitude for you to come to him is one where where your will has made the determination to let go of everything and deliberately commit it all to him. So that brings us to the final step of his plan. The first is to know his sovereignty and that he's chosen you. The second is to come to him with your strivings and with your burdens. And third, submit to Jesus' will and follow his example with an understanding of his heart. Submit to Jesus' will and follow his example with an understanding of his heart. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We submit to Christ's will, of which Jesus has just said is gracious. We submit to that will. Now, we may not understand it. We may not understand how what we're experiencing is gracious. But if God is sovereign, and we know he's sovereign, and we know that Jesus has thanked the Father, for us seeing his truth and coming to him. Do you realize that? That Jesus thanks the Father that you know him. He doesn't stand back and go, man, that guy's a bozo, right? We can feel like that with God. 
We can feel like, man, I screwed this one up. I, I lied. I lusted. God, I don't know. The pride of my heart. I'm lazy, God. Like, you must be so destroyed with me. And he says, no, I give thanks to the Father for you, that he revealed his truth to you. You come to me as my child. You come to me as a little child, one who is dependent on me, not as the wise of the world, but as the vulnerable, the ones willing to give it all to him. Not as the ones who have it together. Not as the ones who are always joyful. But as the ones who see the need. The one who sees the need for me. It's a wonderful picture of Jesus, isn't it? In the midst of your discouragement and despair and disappointment, do you realize that Jesus thanks the Father on for you. And so it is because of this that he calls us to submit to Jesus' will and to follow his example. It does mean that our lives are going to look different. It does mean that some are going to look as if they don't suffer as much. But the beauty of that is that God has a unique will and calling for your life. And he is calling you to submit to Jesus' will. Take my yoke. We're either yoked to the world or we're yoked to Christ. Pick whichever one you want to be yoked to. But one will be heavy and burdensome. The other will be freeing and light. Now the yoke that's being spoken of here is the yoke of the oxen. Just in way of knowing what would happen, carpenters would come out to the oxen. It's not like today where... You would get this kind of set, you go and you find a place and they size it up and they fit it. The yokes were made of wood. The carpenter would come out, shape it on top of the ox, cut around it, and the yoke that was supposed to thrive was that it would hopefully fit correctly. But what we know is that oxen are different sizes, right? We know that they rattle back and forth. Their hips jar back and forth. So you're trying to connect two oxen together. And that wood yoke holds them together and leads them. And it, it can come over and it can chafe and rub. And it's heavy. A yoke is built for an ox. The yoke is not built for mankind. But Jesus says, I have a yoke. And I want you to place yourself in my yoke. I want you to come under me and be in submission to me. You see, the driver of the plow could control where the oxen went. But he's calling us to allow Jesus to be the one that controls where we go. And he's saying, submit to my will, and that is where you will find rest. You see, we tend to think that there are other places to find his rest. The most unsafe place to be 
is not in a war-torn land with bombs falling all over you 20 feet from you every minute of the day. The most unsafe place to be is outside of the will of God. If we are inside the will of God, there is a peace and a peace that only comes from being submitted to Him. And He says, follow my example. Learn from me. So we're submitting ourselves to Jesus and then we follow Him. You see, one of the things that can happen to us with the law is that we, we just say, well, if I just do this, I'll be righteous. And Jesus is saying, actually, Submit to me and follow my example. When you're in this situation, respond as I would respond. Respond in this situation not with vengefulness, but with love. Respond with generosity as opposed to tight-handedness. He's saying, follow my example. In the presence of the world, how does Jesus deal with the world? He doesn't avoid it. He lives righteously in it. God hasn't called us to avoid the world. He's called us to live righteously in it. And in his suffering, where did he go? If you'll recall that in the garden, Jesus asked his disciples to pray. We know from the gospel accounts that the disciples are rebuked because they fell asleep. But the little piece that's so important in that story is that we're told that they fell asleep because of their sorrow. How many of us fall asleep in our sorrow? You see, Jesus wanted them to pray in their sorrow. That's his example. In the midst of our suffering, where do we go? In the midst of being heavy laden, where do we run to? Is it to Jesus or is it to some physical form of rest? I know this past year for me, being stuck in a house for a long period of time last year and being stuck in a hospital, the last place I wanted to be was either of those places. And I'd find myself completely restless and I'm like, I just gotta get out of here. I think that's how we act with the Lord sometimes. God, we just get us out of here. I hope just a change of environment will give us more rest but the rest of our souls is only found in him. There are things that we can do for physical rest, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the peace of our own souls. And that peace eventually produces joy so that we have joy even in the midst of our suffering as Jesus had joy in his suffering. Jesus ran to the Father, and he suffered well. He suffered unjustly, 
and the unjust suffering of this life should cause us to follow his example as we suffer. If we want to know how to live righteously, we follow Jesus' example. That means that we need to be in fellowship with him. We need to know his word. Who is Jesus? What is he like? John MacArthur says, there is a yoke of submission to Christ, but it's not grievous. Is it? It's joyous. It is the greatest liberation in my life. There is the greatest lightness and the greatest ease in my life when I obey. Is that true? Is it when I disobey that the yoke chafes my neck? But in obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ, there is an ease and there is a lightness. J. Ligon Duncan recalled John Calvin's point that teachableness was the first step in spiritual life. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why he says, learn from me. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. God's word will sustain us. If we are teachable, he will sustain us through the power of the word and through his spirit. So there's two important truths then that we need to know about Jesus' heart. This gives us the freedom to submit to his will and follow his example. And he makes it clear here in verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, in essence, is gentle and approachable. That's what it means that Jesus has lowered himself. It's not just that he's humble. It's that his humility is one of lowering himself. It means that he is one who is approachable. We have a Savior who is approachable. It would be easy to think that because he's a king, that we should keep him at a distance. And it would be easy to think that because we just watched his judgment of cities and nations that we should keep our distance. And what he is saying is, I am teachable, excuse me, I am your teacher, I am gentle and approachable. That's his heart. That's his posture towards you. You can approach him. And he desires that you come to him. And then secondly, verse 30 tells us, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the one who equips and strengthens. Jesus is the one who equips and strengthens. When we submit to him and we follow his example, God works in our heart where he equips us and then he strengthens us. It is why Paul said that we could endure this light momentary affliction. Because Christ has already done the work. He's gone to the cross and now he is the one who is strengthening us up. He is the one who's undergirding us, and he is the one who is equipping us. He's the one that is directing the yoke. He's the one that is keeping the yoke light. He is the one that is making sure that the yoke is the right fit. And then he's also the one whose burden, the thing to be which is carried, is light. Because it is not us who carries that burden, it is Jesus. And Jesus carries it on our behalf. And it is the carrying of that 
burden that God works through his spirit to change our lives. And we step back. Now, I'll tell you, I had a little moment of that this week, and this is not to toot my own horn. This is solely of God. When that coffee spilled all over my computer, in the past, what would have gone through my mind is I'm going to kill somebody. (laughs) And I don't think it was all that far off in the past. But when it happened this week, God showed me of his work in my own life, of how honestly anger didn't arise. As I looked at it, there was a calm over my spirit that could only be explained through him. And what was lost was not the burden of my heart, but actually what was noticed was one of thankfulness to the Lord, that God, you work even when I don't see it. Because your yoke is easy and your yoke, your your burden is light. May it be so for us this week that as we head into the Christmas season that we're reminded that Jesus is truly born for our rest, that he has called all of us to come to him, all who are laboring and heavy laden. May it be so for us that his rest is reigning in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of your rest. Thank you for the goodness of your grace. Thank you for the goodness of the salvation that you have granted and for opening our eyes to your truth. May it be, as we've seen your truth, that we seek you, that we come to you, that we submit ourselves completely to you. Father, We thank you that you have borne for us. And may we remember that our rest is to be found in you and not in the things of the world. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.